Hello and welcome to an episode, another episode, yet another wonderful, marvellous episode of Tales from the Doghouse, Separation Anxiety Explained. This is going to be an absolutely fabulous episode and you're really, really going to enjoy it, so stay with us. I'm Sarah McLaren and I'm in the UK at Separation Anxiety Solutions and with me is the lovely Ness. Hello, it's Ness Jones here. I'm in Australia and I'm from Separation Anxiety and Dogs Decoded and also very much looking forward to this discussion coming up. Over to you, Stacey. Hey, I'm Stacey Bell in the US with Focused Fun. Um, today we have the lovely Marsha Penner with us. She is a super, super smart person and um, I feel like in that fangirl headspace. <laughs> Um, but she is a behavioral neuroscientist by training and did like the academic world for 25-ish years and then um, switched over to the dog training world. Um, she graduated from the Karen Pryor Academy for Animal Training and Behavior. Um, Marsha, welcome to our show. We're so happy to have you. Me. Thank you. Yeah. I'm really happy to talk to you. So to start with, I just wanted to give you a little context. We have some dog trainers that listen and some non-dog trainers that listen. So we try to just make everything in regular language. Mm -hmm. And um, when we do use technical terms, we just try to define them the best we can so everybody can follow us. Um, Except Stacy, because Stacy is prone to making up her own words. I do make up <laughs> my own words. I mean, like. If there's not a word I can easily access in my head, I just like make one up. Like yeah, misconception. Be- <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so to start with, um, can you tell us what made you switch from kind of the world of academics to the world of dog training? Yep, uh, there, there was actually a lot of reasons, but, um, you know, before I left academia, I already knew that I wanted to leave. It just took a long time to get out. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, and, and yeah, and I, I had an exit strategy and then against my better judgment, I, I backtracked on that exit strategy and I don't know why, but, um, I moved, I was, working as a research scientist at the University of Washington in Seattle. And my husband and I um, decided to move to North Carolina. We'd lived here before um, we decided to move back. And so the plan was that I, he, he had a job and I was going to do dog things when I got here. So like, I was like, I'm done with academia. I'm going to go to North Carolina and do dog things. And there's lots of great dog people here. So it was like, yay. And a friend of mine hooked me up with a trainer here. Um, her name is Jane Marshall and she's just a fabulous trainer. And, um, she agreed that, you know, maybe she might be interested in having me help out. So I was like, great. So that's my plan. But then you know, a job in academia happened to 
suit my expertise. And so then I ended up with that job and I couldn't turn it down because it seemed like, oh, you know, I, I should do this. You know, I spent all that time getting a PhD. Um, but all the while I was doing the dog thing and the more, the deeper I went into dog training, the more I realized that that was actually what I liked about neuroscience was the behavioral aspect oh, right. of what I did. That's what I actually liked. And it's cool that I know brain stuff to go along with the behavior, but it was really the behavior that I really, really loved. And so while I was still in academia, um, a bunch of professors didn't want to teach a learning course in the department. Uh, and I was like, sign me up. Right. So I, got, I know. And so, you know, I was like, this is like the most fabulous course to get to teach. And I was doing all the dog training stuff. And so um, after I, I graduated from Karen Pryor, you know, I just started to do more and more dog things. And then I went to a Karen Pryor clicker expo and I did that before um, I did the professional course with them. And I realized that, you know, I'd spent however many years going to academic conferences for neuroscience. And then I went to the Karen Pryor Academy conference and it was like just the same thing, but the people were a lot nicer and there was dogs there. <laughs> and I just figured like, I think that I found my people. Like I, you know, because they're based in science, they're asking <laughs> scientific questions, they're approaching behavior, you know, using the scientific method. Um, and so I was just so impressed. And so I was like, I think this was what I was, I, I don't really believe in like what I was meant to do, but in a way I do, because I think it was like, oh, I think this is actually what I was meant to do rather than, you know, writing grants and, you know, doing that, doing that sort of thing. So anyways, that was a long answer, but that's how I ended up um, doing dog training instead. <laughs> Fabulous. Fabulous. Well, good. Um, so we are all about separation related behaviors. Um, and we kind of shorthand that to separation anxiety, just because that's what I think is the layman's umbrella term for it. So you'll hear us just talk about it in that way. But what we mean by that is any separation related behavior. Um, so we have a lot of questions and um, we're a little bit known for going off course, but um, if we could try to relate everything back to separation anxiety in one way or another, that would be we'll like a, a strong goal for friend. today. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. that's just our through line here. Um, okay. So who wants to start with a question? I want you. to know, do, do we have to be on our best behavior or are you going to pick our brains apart? Because we tend to... <laughs> You know, I don't know what <laughs> Stacey's talking about when she says we go off piste, but um, uh -huh. <laughs> other than that, we might have a few dog questions. Um, <laughs> can I just ask, Marsha, what is it that you exactly do now? So where do you work uh, and, and what do you work with? You know, what kind of cases or, you know, what can you just sure. delve into that a little bit, please? Yeah, sure. So. I just started my own business in, um, and yeah, it was really exciting, terrifying. You know, it's like, hey, you know, what's a great idea? Let's start a new business during a pandemic and see how <laughs> that goes. <laughs> 
Um, but I mentioned Jane Marshall earlier. She owns uh, Cheery Dogs in the area where I live. And so I worked with her for um, seven years. She is a fabulous mentor. And when I decided to leave Cheery Dogs, it was like very, like there were a lot of tears. And, um, you know, because I wasn't leaving because there wasn't, I didn't want to be with them. It was just that I thought maybe it was time to branch out on my own a little bit and just test that. So um, I focus primarily on puppies and adolescent dogs. However, um, as maybe many of you are experiencing, there's a lot of people who need help with a lot of other things going on right now. I think in part because of the pandemic, so many people got puppies and the socialization that was available to them wasn't always optimal and they did the best that they could. And, you know, just, uh, so just so many reasons for why people need help now. So, sure. um, mm -hmm. so I do, uh, I, I have some aggression cases uh, that are referred from vet behaviorists or from other trainers. Um, and I think, you know, the trainers in my area are all really, really great about referring to other positive trainers and just, you know, really trying to find good trainers for people who need help. So if they can't do it, you know, they know somebody who they trust, who they can refer to. So I have taken on some aggression cases, leash reactivity. Um, I do not do separation anxiety cases. I, I refer all of them to Stacy. <laughs> um, <laughs> because um, I just don't feel that I have enough experience um, with separation anxiety cases, just be like, yeah, I guess I'll figure that out. No. Um, so if I were going to start taking on those kinds of cases, I would ask somebody if they would mentor me before I would do that. Um, and so, uh, and I also, I like kudos to you guys, because for me personally, um, I find separation anxiety to be one of the hardest things to work with because um, I know how much commitment the person needs to have to get through it. And I just, I know that it must look like, you know, just uphill battle for a lot of people and like, oh my God, is this ever going to resolve or is this ever going to get better? And, and it makes me, it makes me anxious. So. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so I, and I work with dogs. Okay. Yeah. Um, Sarah, Jane is from the UK, so you probably know her. <laughs> oh, yeah, because it's, it's yeah, so it's small just, here. Yeah. I, it is tiny. I did, it's really tiny. There was, one, there was one tiny little side note that I did want to pick up on that Masha said a little bit earlier that she moved from Seattle. Um, mm -hmm. And I'd just like to say that, so Ness is always calling out how I live in the UK and it's always raining and dark. Uh, I think Seattle, it rains more than it does here. Yes, so I it's just want very grey. Yeah. Look, I'm not the only one less. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah. so, so I'm assuming that Caroline is nicer. Or um, well, I would say that um, I uh, don't love the weather here either. I'm Canadian, actually, and oh. so... Um, I prefer much colder weather and I find the summers here to be absolutely unbearable, like un unbearable, unbearable. So um, I, I, I honestly, I prefer Seattle weather to this. I do too. I, uh -huh. I lived in 
Lacey, Washington, which is just at the end of the Puget Sound for four, four-ish years. Um, and I prefer that to here as well. It's, yeah. it's actually pretty temperate there. Um, and it rains. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. You can, it's like a misty rain, so you can still do stuff most of the time. Exactly. <laughs> Fine. So there we go. That's that's rabbit hole one done, right? Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm trying to think. Okay, so I think one of the uh, interesting questions or a question that would be interesting to hear your answer to for our listeners would be um, kind of thinking about you know, how we learn a new way of doing something and, um, you know, how that may play out into what we're seeing in training. Like, so for instance, um, currently the dog is, finds being home alone scary. We're trying to teach it that home alone is safe. Um, but in the training process, we're seeing variability, um, and so can you, from a um, super smart person perspective, view of the brain, talk us through to, as to like what might be happening in that picture? Is that maybe. too broad of a question? <laughs> yeah, maybe. You know, I, I, I don't know how dogs' memories, you know, what, how they're constructed or, you know, how they look to the dog. However, uh, I know that their neuroanatomy is very similar to ours and also, um, well, to most mammals. So, um, you know, they, they have similar structures that probably mediate memory as we do. And so, you know, it's probably not exactly organized how ours is. But, you know, when I think about training scenarios, you know, I think about it in kind of kind of two aspects. One is like the behavior that I'm training and then also the context in which that behavior is occurring. Um, and so, you know, most of my knowledge base comes from a background of um, figuring out how the brain is creating the context essentially, right? So an ep like an episodic like memory. Um, okay. And there's really good evidence that um, animals other than humans have episodic like memory and that it may be organized very similar, similarly to how ours is, right? So a behavior, no matter what it is, is always occurring in some kind of context, right? And so within that context, there are lots of cues. And as trainers, um, you know, we're always trying to figure out what cues, right, might be, yeah, the antecedents, right, that, um, you know, uh, prompt the behavior to occur. Um, and there's probably lots of things because we're people that we don't even realize our cues because we're not perceiving that context, like a dog is perceiving that context. So, you know, sight, sound, smell, all of that good stuff. So when a dog is initially, um, let's say the dog is very fearful about being by themselves, you know, what prompts the 
emotion of fear or the behavior that we call fear or label fear, right? Mm -hmm. There obviously is some cue, right? That's prompting that. And I'm sure you work a lot with what those cues are going to be like departure cues, you know, keys jingling or Mm -hmm. people putting, you know, putting their socks on before they put their shoes on or, you know, whatever it's going to be right. And the dog's like, "Uh Oh, I think I know where this is going. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. And so it's almost like the dog has learned our behavior chain, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's like, oh, now we're further along the behavior chain, right? And so, you know, to me, that seems very episodic in nature. You know, if you think about things that you, that might make you nervous, right? And then, you know, you start to see the things that are bringing you closer to that event that's very, very episodic in nature, right? And so the brain regions that are, you know, kind of putting that all together are all working together to put those cues together within the context, right? And, you know, let's say theoretically, you could take the dog out of the very specific context, take them out of their home environment. And then let's say, I don't know, like you could take them to the neighbor's house or whatever, right? And and do some training in a, in a different context, right? Probably some of the cues would transfer to that other context as well, right? Um, but some of them may not, or there may be new cues. And so to me, that suggests that while that might represent a different context in many ways, right? That there's some overlap in those memories, right? And so, uh, and so there's enough overlap probably because the cells that are in the brain that are representing that information may be shared across contexts, right? So, you know, um, it's, uh, the, I don't know, there was like this joke a while back in neuroscience, you know, about, um, there was some article written and they were like, oh, some neuroscientist has found the grandmother cells in the brain, right? Like as if there's one cell in your brain that represents your grandmother's face. Uh-huh. <laughs> and when the cells active, you can, you know, recognize your grandmother's face, but of course it's not really like that, right? So, right, you know, right. it's not like we have one neuron and like all it does is like hold information about tables, you know, so every time you see a table, it's like, oh, this is the table neuron. However, you know, there are probably some neurons that are somewhat specific in terms of, you know, what kinds of information they have, and then they cross talk to other neurons, right? And then we get representations of things all put together, right? So, you know, for the dog, um, their brain would be wired in a very similar way, right? And so, you know, unfortunately, that means that the context, right, it often full of those cues, like very rich in cues, right, is very hard to get control of those things so that you can get rid of the antecedents, right, in right. a meaningful, in any meaningful way. So right. I don't know if, if that is kind of what you were interested in. I think that's great. And it really explains, I mean, one of the things that we do with our clients is drop a lot of those pre-departure cues if we can early on to try to get some change the antecedent arrangement pretty much. Um, And that could include using a different door that doesn't have all that emotional baggage associated with it. So we try to change the front end, get some traction. And then once they've got some duration built up, we work on adding those back in because Uh, like we say all the time, keys are not scary because they're keys. 
They're exactly. just scary because they predict a scary absence. But then once we say, okay, well, absences aren't scary anymore. There are only safe absences. Um, then we bring the keys back in. And usually what we find is that we have to do very little work in um, counter conditioning what keys mean or bring them back in because it's like, you know, it's been a little bit deconstructed at that point. So I, I love that. So, so the brain region that I love the most, <laughs> I have a favorite. So okay. my favorite is <laughs> my favorite brain region is the hippocampus. And I love it because of, of what we think it does and how it does it. But also it's like the most beautiful. It's so, it's so, it's just so beautiful. If you get to look at a brain slice of a hippocampus on a, on a microscope, it's just, it's so gorgeous. But anyways, one of the um, things that the hippocampus um, is thought to do, and this was a very hot topic, um, you know, maybe 10 years ago, there's still people working on it, but lots of people have moved maybe to some other questions. But um, I, I think much of this research still stands is that the hippocampus, um, you know, what it's doing is it's providing the, the index for the complete memory, right? So the hippocampus itself, right? So this is a, a midbrain structure in your temporal lobe, right? So kind of here in the middle, I'm pointing kind of towards my temples, right? So <laughs> the, the medial temporal lobe, not midbrain, but medial temporal lobe. So in the middle of the temporal lobe um, and it's highly connected to other brain regions. And so one idea is that when you're making an episodic memory of some kind. So let's say the easiest one as an example is usually a birthday party, right? So if you think about your last birthday party, there's lots of detail, right, within that. And the context is always present, right, when you're thinking of those sorts of things. So, you know, you think of all those details and what the, what the hippocampus is thought to do is basically provide the index for the memory so that the other brain regions that actually store the bits right, when you're recalling the memory, it gets recalled in full, right, so yeah. not just bits and ends, right, but you actually get the full representation of the memory, right, so some people have um, referred to the hippocampus or talked about it kind of like, um, I know people don't do this anymore because we have computers, but like a card catalog in a library, yeah. right, mm. so when you go to the card catalog, it doesn't have all the information that you're looking for, but it tells you where to go look for the information and information related to the information you're looking for, right, so it's kind of a thought to do that, and so so when you're recalling a memory, um, you know, the other thing that it might do is you know, you've had many birthday parties, right? And they've all been different in some way. And so you need to be able to distinguish between them, right? So one, you know, episodic memory, like I think I can remember my seventh birthday party-ish, um, kind of. Um, I kind of have some good detail about that. And then like, I remember my, oh, I remember my 40th birthday really well because it was like also not that long ago, but <laughs> but it was a really great- <laughs> Like just a couple really weeks, I mean- <laughs> it was a really great one. And so how do, how can I tell those two things apart? How does my brain keep them apart so that I know this one was 40 and this one was seven, right? Well, the hippocampus, what it can do is act. There's the way that the cells are organized and the information comes into it from other parts of the brain. It seems like it can compare things and be like, oh, this goes with this. 
right? And this goes with this, right? So, so people sometimes refer to that, sorry for the jargon, but um, they refer to it as pattern separation. So the pattern of brain activity, activity might be similar, but then the hippocampus says, mm, actually, these are different enough, right? That actually, these are different memories. We need to actually call up some different neurons so that we get separation of these two memories. And sometimes, you know, that overlap, you know, um, comes to the hippocampus from other brain regions. And then um, these networks of cells say, oh, um, actually uh, that little bit of information lets me know how to find the rest of it, right? And so what the hippocampus is doing there is it's pattern completing. So it takes um, a bit of a memory and then it allows you to call up all the neurons that come together to represent the memory as a whole. Um, and so, you know, when we're thinking about training contexts, you know, if you, um, you know, you get rid of your departure cues and you are creating a new episodic memory um, that you've, you've carefully constructed your training plan so that you've eliminated a lot of the things that would cue the, mm -hmm. I'm putting this in quotes, bad memory, right? You get right. rid of those cues and you basically build a new safe episodic memory, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if that's going really well, then the hippocampus, I think I would imagine it looking like having more information to really solidify mm -hmm. the idea that these things are separate. Yeah. Right. Oh, really yeah. separate. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so uh, and then when you're successful, right, when you start adding back some of your departure cues, the hippocampus is like, oh, no, these are different. Um, right. That scary one. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes, the keys were there, but that was actually, you know, th that was actually different. And we felt different about that. Right. And these memories are actually separate. So that's kind of how I think of, you know, yeah, that, that yeah. information being processed mm -hmm. in the brain. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so the old episodic, episodic memories are still there. They don't yes. go anywhere. Um, no. You're just building new ones. So yes. what happens to the old ones? Do they kind of get filed further and further back, would you say, in your little card catalogue? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that, that's a hard question to answer, and in part because, you know, when we're talking about memory, um, you know, let's say that you don't recall something or you can't recall something. It happens to me more and more these days <laughs> as I get yeah. older. But, you know, like you're trying to think of something and then you're like, oh, it'll come to me. And then like two days later, you're like, oh, right. That's what I was trying mm -hmm. to think of. You know, what that tells you is that you didn't for theoretically or actually, you didn't forget the information right? Because it's still stored in your brain. It's that you were unable to retrieve the information when you wanted to, right? And these are two different things, right? Forgetting, like true forgetting is, I think, the idea that the neurons that represent that memory no longer represent that memory. And that might be because those neurons are no longer there. It might be because those neurons have physically changed. Um, parts of them have physically changed and the machinery is no longer there, right? To represent that information. But it can be very difficult to know which is which, right? Because mm -hmm. if you can't remember something, sometimes it might be days later and you're like, oh, 
that's what it was or right and then you realize oh it is still there so it's very I think difficult to say oh is the information not there anymore or is it that we're just not retrieving it um as much anymore right so I think um like the old use it or lose it, I think is really important, right? And that's why like repetition and training is so good. Cause when you're, when you're um, repeating things, what you're doing is actually strengthening the connections between the cells that hold the memory. So your new context, your new training context, that's safe departures, right? Every time you have success and that's the memory that's being called up and added to, right? You're strengthening all of those connections between those neurons, right? And if we're no longer having scary departures, right, then um, those connections are not no longer being strengthened. And so perhaps over time, some of that is truly forgotten. And I put that in quotation marks. But, um, you know, I think there's a, there's still a lot there, right? It's not like, I don't think that it would actually be completely gone. Mm -hmm. honestly. Yeah. Well, I wonder, oh, sorry, just touching on that. Sorry, Stacey, if you don't mind. So when we talk about separation related behaviors you know we say it's a harder fix because it's based in emotion so as opposed to teaching a, a dog a behavior like you know i don't know a sit or something like that when we're dealing with separation anxiety and we're trying to build those new episodic memories you know it is based in emotion so are those um i'm, I'm not going to answer this the right way but um because uh, I, I, I don't. I, by the way, thank you so much for dumbing it down for people like me. Because no, I'm not, I'm not really at all. <laughs> um, but yeah, so because we're dealing with this emotion, um, you know, are these chains that are all linking together these neurons, these episodic memories? How different is it to teaching something like just you know, I want you, my dog to learn how to sit or come mm. or whatever? That's such a good question. So. You know, episodic memory is a very specific kind of memory, and there are many different kinds of memory, right? So, you know, when we're talking about, you know, things like teaching a dog to sit, um, you know, we're really starting to move more towards motor memory, procedural memory kinds of things, right? And so that's actually a different um, set of brain structures uh, that's involved. And so where um, procedural memory or skill learning, motor memory, you know, where that overlaps with episodic memory is that the learning occurred within a context, right? And so you, you might be able to say, oh, I, I, I know how to ride a bicycle. I actually find it very difficult to verbally tell somebody how to do it, right? Like, you know, okay, you, you, you straddle it and then like, what do you do first? Like, do you put your foot on a pedal? You know, so if you actually try to give instructions without doing it yourself, it's very difficult. However, I know I can ride a bicycle because I've got the motor memory for it. You put me on a bicycle, I can do it. And I haven't ridden one in a long time. The other component is I can tell you when I learned to ride a bicycle, who was there, what the bicycle looked like, right? That's the episodic component of it, right? But if you erased my episodic memory, my memory of how to ride a bicycle would be intact because it's a different brain network, right? That's mediating that behavior. Wow. So, so interesting. So, that, kind, that kind of brings me um, to another question about like fear learning. 
So how are memories that are made with fear learning harder to overcome then because it's that like whammy type yes. of thing? And yes. then, um, you know, are there strategies from a um, brainy, like I know there are some strategies when we're, when we're thinking about training um, and then maybe have like something really positive happen afterwards um, that can, can magnify, help the dog hang on to that learning better. So are there other things like that thing that can help us overcome the fear learning more efficiently? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. There's a lot of people working on that. Um, lots and lots. So yeah. So, um, so from the beginning, when uh, folks were interested in where memories were in the brain, you know, and, and nothing was understood at all, and there was no you know, fancy technology or anything like that, right? Physicians or clinicians, researchers relied on clinical cases. Um, and so they would have patients, right, who would come in and who would have, you know, unusual symptoms, right? Unusual changes in behavior. And so through those case studies, right, afterwards, um, they would uh, do a dissection of the brain and they'd be able to determine where there was damage in the brain and then be like, oh, okay, interesting. So now we know that if you don't have that part of the brain, <laughs> right, you're not going to be able to do X, Y, or Z. Okay. So, you know, so it's, you know, definitely like a sledgehammer approach to figure out what different <laughs> brain regions are doing, but you know, that was the best, um, that people could do. So even in the beginning, right, as people were hypothesizing or, you know, kind of questioning and guessing what different parts of the brain did, right. The people who were interested in memory, saw from case studies that as people started to lose their memory, that the last memories to go are emotional memories. They're the most resistant to disruption, the hardest to get rid of, right? And so, uh, so that was, that's been known early, 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 early on um, in the field is that emotional memories are, are just really resistant to disruption. And it makes sense because if something has happened that was dangerous, I mean, you don't, you don't want to get rid of those, right? And right, that's, right. What, that's what keeps us alive. So it, it does make sense. Um, you know, in terms of you know, the, the research, or at least the research that I know about um, fear memories and how people are kind of approaching, um, you know, how to change memories. You know, one approach is um, to uh, do like basically exactly what you're doing, right? You know, change context, you know, dissect everything, right? Take everything apart and then start to rebuild and, you know, kind of put things back together so that the things that are evoking the fear behaviors, right? Um, or whatever we're labeling fear behaviors, right? Um, don't have to occur anymore. And so in the neuroscientific world, you know, the way that you approach this with experiments is you create a fear memory, and then you find out the timeline of it. So how long does it take for a fear memory to consolidate in the brain? In other words, stick, right? And so 
um, the standard in the field is 24 hours for memory consolidation. And so after that 24 hour period, there's been changes made in the brain, um, you know, molecular pathways and things, right, have completed some of their work to make sure that the memory sticks. So the idea is, um, if we want to discover how to disrupt fear memories, we need to figure out the timeline. And then we also need to figure out within that 24 hour period, when do we need to disrupt um, the brain in some ways so that the fear memory won't stick essentially, right? And so um, there was this really great study that I hope I can remember the details um, that was done. Um, it's, a, it's a study with humans. Um, I think it was folks from McGill University and I can't remember the, the year, but the, the first author on the study, I think is Schwab. What they did is they had people um, view uh, images, right? So they're looking at a screen and they're viewing images and some of them are really horrific. Like, I mean, really horrific, um, really scary, disturbing stuff. Um, yeah. And then, and there was also some neutral images and then um, they waited 24 hours, right? So that nice consolidation period. So now we know we've got the memory stuck in the brain. They've had time to basically worm their way into those neurons. And then they took half of the folks and um, they, they made them review uh, the images. And um, while they were, I think just before they viewed them, they injected them or had them take a pill of a drug that um, basically suppresses adrenergic receptors in the brain, right? So beta adrenergic receptors. So if you think of adrenaline or noradrenaline, right? Um, okay. So you're blocking those receptors, right? In the brain so that they're not activated. Um, and then those people, uh, that group goes away and comes back 24 hours later. And the other group doesn't get a drug, but they just re-see, um, you know, the horrible images. So what they um, found is that the people who got the drug, they um, did not have um, as strong of memories for the really awful yeah. pictures of the horrible, horrible things, but the other folks did because they um, viewed those pictures twice, basically, but without a drug on board. So they like, you know, if you think of it, you had a fearful experience and then 24 hours later, you had the same fearful experience, right? So when you come back to be assessed, you're gonna be like, yeah, that was actually pretty scary. And you remember a bunch of those terrible pictures. Whereas that group that got the drug, they had a scary experience and then they had the same experience, but right without the beta adrenergic receptors binding noradrenaline or adrenaline, right? Um, right. And so they come back and, and they remember fewer of those horrific pictures. And so it was, it was a, such an interesting demonstration of how knowing the timeline of the consolidation of those fear memories can help us figure out when we could do potentially either a behavioral intervention or a drug intervention, right? And then um, the other important thing there is that the reason why they did the second exposure, so they did the first exposure, they waited 24 hours and they did the second exposure is that um, you consolidate the memories the first time, right? And then, 24 hours later, those memories get reactivated when you're 
viewing those scary pictures again. And the reactivation of those memories makes them soft and easy to disrupt. And so that's, that's really crucial because it gives you the opportunity to update the memories. And that's what they did with the drug, right? Because the first, the first exposure to the scary pictures was really scary with all the emotions and feelings attached to it. The second exposure in the drug condition, right? They basically had um, exactly the same exposure. You're reactivating the memories that were consolidated, except that you've blocked those receptors in the brain that are mediating the emotional, fearful component of things. And by doing that 24 hours later, right, you no longer have that emotional experience to those horrible images, right? So that consolid that consolidation process then allows you to update the fear memory. And so I think probably that's a lot of what you're what you're doing. Mm, gosh, I'm so really glad I wasn't part of that study. I don't yeah, want to see all these. Me too. And um they showed a couple of like sample images, you know, mm. in the oh yeah. In the published paper. And I'm like, yeah, I don't need to know what else they showed people. I'm definitely yeah. I definitely not wanna no thing okay. yeah they were really i know you think oh whatever show you a bunch of pictures but they were really awful yeah it's like it when, when people of... people send you dog pictures on the internet and then you know and you're like you, once it's in there you, you feel like you can yeah. never get rid of it mm -hmm. yeah. Really yeah. yeah yeah it kind of reminds me of um have you ever had any clients that have um used celio for um thunderstorm phobia or anything like that not yet lots of trazodone users but yeah yeah well this yeah. this particular one um medication I've just seen kind of like the effects that you're describing like just made me think of that I mean I don't take those cases anymore but it, it makes me think of how you see the effects of, um, you know, really scared and then start taking that. And like some dogs within like five doses, like you would just see like, and without any beha behavior modification training, you would see such a reduction in mm. their fear response or, you know, their fear response. But I, I wonder about that drug then. I, I haven't really, yeah. uh, I know about it, but I haven't really, I haven't had any clients who've used it, but um, that's yeah. interesting. So the, the drug that they used in this study is a drug, I've actually taken it for, um, when I was younger, I used to get migraines and it's it's called um, propranolol. And um, it's used for, uh, it's a blood pressure medication is what it was initially approved for. Um, some people take it for anxiety. Um, and I was taking it off label for migraine headaches. And I had to come off of it because it lowered my blood pressure too much. And I was fainting <laughs> all the time. Uh, oh, no. There's <laughs> but, uh, that. But that's the drug. And it's actually um, a really safe drug. It's been on available, you know, it's been prescribed for decades and decades. Um, and it's been used in other contexts where people have had bad experiences. So um, one example is after really bad car accidents, mm. um, there was some trials where people were getting propranolol afterwards to see if they could reduce the PTSD, PT, right, yeah. PTSD, yeah, PTSD <laughs> um, symptoms um, after something like that. Yeah, that's really interesting to me. I wonder, yeah, I don't really know how Celio 
works, but I just wonder if it has something to do with what you were just talking about, because it really. Well, and if it's modulating things, like if it's modulating the sympathetic nervous system, you know, so that, you know, your blood pressure isn't going up, your heart rate isn't going up, you know, um, and, and kind of like keep, kind of keeping that all pretty level. I mean, that's the formation of a new memory, right? Because right. Yeah. 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 Cause you're like, Oh, the thunderstorm's happening. Oh, huh. I actually don't feel that bad. Yeah. Interesting. There's, um, there's, there's another medication that, that I know that we've used over here that um, is for blood pressure. That's on the similar, it's, it works on a similar system. Uh, and years ago, we've got um, a reactive dog that we used with. Uh, we used it with her, and that was the same kind of thing. She'd see the things that she would normally shout at or, or have a fear response to, but the the medication allowed her to see it. But uh, uh, none of her system could go with it, and it was like you know, her pupils couldn't dilate and her heart couldn't race, and all those things that would normally tell her that this is a fearful experience were just cut off. So she yeah. learned that, oh, actually, maybe this isn't so scary because suddenly I don't feel so scared. And it's it's a, it's amazing to watch that yeah. process and how some how a medication can make so such a massive difference in their ability to learn in a situation that previously would have been yeah. you know riddled yeah. with panic. Yeah. Yeah. It's that uh, yeah, that is really, yes, I love that. And um and in that case, you know, I think probably what's happening is, you know, especially if a lot of the things are remaining the same, the context, the cues, you know, all of that. But the thing that's changed is the level of activation of the sympathetic nervous system. That's yeah. updating a memory. So instead of creating a new memory there, you would you would be updating an old memory, mm -hmm. right? And be like, well, uh, I don't feel the same way um, that I used to every time I saw a dog or, you know, whatever it was. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the questions, sorry, Desi, I just wanted to, but was, was one of the questions I had was um, on a similar line, but from the other side of that. So when we've got, if we've had um, a dog that's done, um, if we've been doing some departure training with a dog and they've had a really, really good session and they've had, you know, they've been calm and happy and relaxed are the ways that we can then consolidate that afterwards. So, you know, like there's a lot out there about, uh, playing with your dog after you've done some training or doing something really nice after you've done some training to help to consolidate that memory. Is that a thing or is that just us throwing sticks in the air and hoping they're <laughs> going to land in the place we want? Well, no, I don't think it's just throwing sticks in the air. And so um, the lab that I was in when I was a graduate student, um, they did a lot of sleep work. And so what we know about the brain part of it is that, you know, um, in those experiments, an animal would basically be put into a context and learn things about the context. And while the animal was learning things about the context, we would be recording from um, neurons in the brain in the hippocampus, right? And then after they were done learning about the context, then, um, they would get put away all kind of nice and cozy for a nap afterwards. And while they were napping, those same neurons that learned that context would fire in the same sequence as if the brain was replaying the experience. And so one thought about sleep is that, you know, one aspect or one function of sleep, why we 
need it is that it is basically kind of training the brain, right? Uh, we're, we need to keep this information or information about this experience. And so the neurons kind of wire up together while you're sleeping so that later on, when you need to use that information, those neurons can be fired in the correct sequence. So you can remember what to do in that context. So I would argue that you know, if you've had a really good training session that, um, you know, gradually taking your dog out of that training session in a very deliberate way and seeing if you can getting them to rest, I think would be worthwhile because if you can, if those neurons can, can strongly wire together while the dog is resting, I think you have a really good chance of being able to really glue that information into the neurons. And, you know, I don't know, um, yeah, I know the, I know the research that you're talking about, about play. Um, I think it was play, sleep, and there was one other condition that was good. And then one that wasn't, oh, more training wasn't right. So if you, you train and then you train again, um, you don't see gains. And that actually makes a lot of sense to me because remember I said, memory consolidation takes about 24 hours. And so if you have a learning event and then too soon after you have another one, the original learning event didn't have time to consolidate, right? Oh, and so you may actually interfere with the consolidation of that first memory. So if I had a particularly good training session, I would do everything I could to definitely protect that. And I would be inclined to try see if I could get my dog to rest. Hmm. So interesting. <laughs> mm. well, uh, there was just one other one that kind of like led on from that I think I um I heard you speak on um uh, a podcast earlier and you were talking about ol olfaction uh, mm -hmm. particular sense and how they bypass a lot of things and and just go straight into so you know it's that thing where if I smell certain trees it takes me back to when I was like 10 years old um is it what well, is that something that could also help do you think with the type of training that we do you know if you were to set up a particular scent during training as a kind of like a safe cue would that be something that we could utilize do you think or do you think it's a little bit too um oh, I can't think of the word now there we go there's a memory gone it'll come back to me in two days <laughs> like you know I I'm not, so I'll just say this and then people can hate me for saying it. Like I'm not into the woo woo stuff. Okay. Right. <laughs> you know, so like magical properties of lavender, you know, oh, whatever, yeah. you know, however, from a learning perspective, right. Mm. Odors are one of the most salient cues to recall memories that exist mm. and not just for dogs, but for us as well. Um, and, you, you know, because again, I think part of it is that, you know, um, the information bypasses, right, basically like a relay station doesn't have to go there. And a lot of that olfactory information goes directly to the um, parts of the brain that process emotion and memory. It, it's just boom, straight shot, like straight highway right to those brain regions. And mm -hmm. so, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, utilizing all the things in your toolkits, I think, I think olfaction could actually be a very salient cue for relaxation. And I know that I've seen protocols like it. I think Karen Overall's 
protocol for relaxation. I feel like at some point I watched a lecture or something where um, this came up that you could use an olfactory cue during that training so that when you wanted the dog especially to relax um, after you've done the training that you could present the odor, right? As yeah. like the, the beginning cue to get the relaxation. I think it was her, maybe it was Pat Miller. Anyways, um, yeah, I think that that's totally possible. I also think that um, because dogs can detect like minuscule, minuscule of minuscules, <laughs> you know, of odor that you, I think it's not like you're just going to throw some odor around with the training. I think it has to be very carefully, you know, you'd need to plan for it. And I mm. think, um, and just be careful how you, um, you know, how you implemented that in the training and take it really seriously. But, um, one of the, um, one of my favorite studies, it was done a, a little while ago, but um, people learn, it was a, it's a human study. People learned, um, they did a learning task and um, half of the people who were doing the learning task, they did it with an odor present and half of them did it without an odor present. And then what they had them do is sleep in the lab. Um, and then they tested them 24 hours later, because that's the consolidation period, right? And um, the people, and then they, um, they presented them with the odor. And so the people who had been trained with the odor performed much better than the people who had not been trained with the odor. So it did make a difference. And then the other really cool thing that they did is while those folks were sleeping, they had them sleep in an MRI um, machine or scanner um and so while they were sleeping they presented the odor and what they saw is activation of the hippocampus <laughs> which is involved in yeah in um helping to consolidate those memories during that sleep period um and so uh i think there's good evidence that um you could absolutely use odor when i used to talk about talk about this to undergraduates when I was teaching and they'd be like oh, okay so when I study like when you have an odor and then you, I was like and then you get your roommate to come in while you're sleeping and just like waft it odor around and it'll like cut your studying in half it probably not but <laughs> I'm wondering if that's where all the scented candles came from then everybody burning vanilla candles to help <laughs> do studies better and <laughs> mm. That's interesting. So while we're kind of talking about sleep, um, one of the things that we sometimes contend with when we're working through uh, building duration is that um, the dogs will fall asleep, and which is really great because you take like, a yay, <laughs> yay, right? So yeah. you take a dog who was panicking, and now they're they're so relaxed that they're able to fall asleep, but then we get a lot that, you know, does it really count if they're asleep? Um, so can, do you have any words of wisdom about, you know, that, you know, like, does it really count if they're sleeping? Like, like they're not learning? Yes. Mm. Yes. Huh. Yeah. Are they really having a mm. safe absence if the owner's out and they're sleeping through the owner's I absence mean, is it a safe absence i have no idea how to answer that um i think like if they knew that the owner left 
Yes, that's what we always make sure that they know the owner right. left. If they but, yeah. knew that the owner left and they were able to fall asleep and they also woke up and were not panicked mm-hmm. when they woke up. Right. Um, I mean, it makes sense to me that, I mean, that's an excellent learning. That would be an, an excellent learning episode, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of like, can you learn when you're sleeping? I mean, yeah, I mean, your brain is busy <laughs> for right, sure. Right. So, um, you know, so we're talking about memory consolidation during sleep, right? And so, you know, the brain is strengthening some memories, but not all memories. The brain also weakens other memories. Um, and so if you think of, you know, like when we're talking about, you know, information being represented in the brain, it's through all these connections among neurons in the brain, right? And so those connections can be strengthened or they can be weakened. And so for the brain, there's always like this balance of we're going to strengthen the stuff that we think is really important, that was particularly salient. And we're going to weaken the stuff that we think we no longer need to use, because there's really, believe it or not, there is a storage capacity limit right? It's hard to imagine, but I mean, there is, there's only so many things you can store. So, you know, during sleep, you're strengthening some things and weakening other things. And so, you know, if your person has just left and you feel relaxed enough to, to fall asleep, you know, maybe that's one of the things that is contributing to, um, you know, effectively moving things in the right direction. I don't know, but that would be, that would be my guess i think it counts i do too i 100 I, mean, I have counts. no evidence for that like at all but it just from a gut you know yeah and i think i mean for me especially for the shorter absences because they haven't had the time to fall into a, a deep completely relaxed sleep the you know in five or ten minutes they're still only at a, a fairly shallow level so they're still hearing things they're still taking in information so i, I think unless you're talking they've been asleep for an hour in which case they might be like out, out. <laughs> and and yeah. I suppose even then, like you say, this, the brains are still busy. Yeah. Oh yeah. Super busy. Super, we super need, busy. We need someone to do a study on that, Marsha. I know. Well, so here's the other thing is, you know, um, oh no, here comes Amazon Prime. Sorry if my dogs bark. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, like the other thing is that um, I don't know they've shown this in people or rats or dogs but for well I know this happens in in dolphins is it in dolphins um but that um they have um basically there's this balance where like when they fall asleep there are specific neurons that are on and making sure that they're monitoring the external environment for safety right and um neurons can take turns right so that um you know somebody's basically always on watch and so i don't know what the data is for other mammals but um i mean that would make sense though from a survival standpoint we sleep we actually require a lot of sleep i think you know i mean i do (laughs) right and so i mean when you're sleeping i mean you're not you know, if somebody wants to, you know, take your food or steal your dog or whatever, right? I mean, that's when you do it. And so, and they dogs can have my food, even, but not my dog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and dogs sleep even more than we do, 
right? Mm -hmm. So, yes. I mean, I'll have to look it up. Ask me at some point. I'm going to look it up and see if I can find any additional work on that. But all of that to say that um, if a dog is sleeping during an absence that, you know, although the dog may not be responsive, it doesn't mean that information isn't being processed on some level. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I'm going to count it as a win. Yeah. (laughs) Did you guys have anything else that you wanted to ask? Oh, well, I'd really like to ask about serial killers, but it's not really on topic, is it? (laughs) (laughs) I'm a true crime junkie, so I'm like, "Mm, I've heard all this stuff about serial killers, and I think it's the frontal part of their brain. Some of them are missing that, or they've had injuries when they're children that have changed their personality or or something. But, yeah, it's nothing to do with separation-related behaviour, so... (laughs) Yeah, no, that's probably not. I think, you know, um, a lot of that is not as conclusive as some of the more, the, I don't know, popular media sites make it seem. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. that is the case. Yeah, funny, funny, but Sarah, did you have a question outside of serial killers? Uh, no, <laughs> Mash has asked, um, answered most of my questions just in in general um, uh, conversation. There, uh, the only other thing I had on here was was um, I also heard you you speak about dopamine, um, mm. and and the, look at her smile. I'm like mm. <laughs> <laughs> dopamine discussions. The the liking versus wanting. Mm-hmm. Can you explain yeah. that? To, to me a little bit and to our darling viewers and the rest of us. Really that yeah. I found <laughs> yeah, I think I think probably whether you care about neuroscience or not, you've probably heard about dopamine and you know, I don't know. It I feel like dopamine gets blamed for a lot of stuff. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> it's true. Um, and and like people now, you know, it's there's like memes and things like that, you know, that involve dopamine and um, I'm like, oh, poor dopamine. It's not even dopamine's fault this time, right? And so, <laughs> and so um, you know, I think about it in terms of one, from a learning perspective, um, you know, the idea that there are dopamine neurons in the brain that provide what's called a prediction error signal, right? And so they signal whether the reinforcement that has just occurred is um, neutral, is better than you had hoped, or um, is really, (laughs) you know, subpar, right? It's like, "Mm, no, this should have been a lot better, right? And so there's, there's the reward prediction signal aspect of it. Um, And of course, that's going to promote learning, right? Because like, let's say, you know, you're in a context learning about something and then the reinforcement that you get is actually a lot better than what you had expected, right? The dopamine neurons may signal that, for example, by releasing um, some extra dopamine, right? And so that may strengthen the memory for um, the thing, you know, whatever it is you're working on, right? Um, but, But then, you know, going to the idea of wanting and, and liking, I think a lot of people think that, you know, dopamine is all about like, oh, you, 
you like stuff because dopamine, right? So it's like, oh, I like potato chips because um, when I eat potato chips, there's a bunch of dopamine getting released in my brain. Um, and so liking, um, there's a lab that has done a lot of work on this and I just love their research because it's just, it's so elegant. Like the studies they design, oh, it's dreamy. Anyways, um, they have done a lot of work on this question of liking versus wanting. And so, you know, liking is like, yum, yum, that's great, right? Like you eat something that's delicious and you're like, oh, I like this. You know, there's something mm -hmm. about that, you know, however you're going to define what that feels for you, right? So they have provided a good amount of evidence that that is actually mediated by the opioid system in the brain. And that, um, and that wanting, right? So wanting being different than liking is what dopamine um, perhaps more strongly mediates, right? And so if you think of um, how they showed this, they, um, they used facial expressions. And so um, you've probably seen like TikTok videos or YouTube videos where, you know, somebody will give their baby uh, a little piece of lemon or lime, you know, mm -hmm. it's really sour and then and this the face that they make that like puckery you know like just <laughs> yeah so and, and it's very clear that they don't like it like you can you're you're you can see on their face you they don't need to tell you you know they don't like it right and so it's like haha that was funny um well if you do this to non-human primates they actually make a very similar facial expression to bitter taste um and human human babies do as well bitter taste also makes that you know, kind of disgust face. And believe it or not, rats also make this face. And so um, what they were able to do is use the fact that, that you can see this spatial reaction across species and then expose them to something bitter, which creates the facial reaction, or to something sweet. And so when human babies, non-human primates and rats are exposed to something sweet, um, they all do kind of this like lip licking, you know, kind of like make sure that they get it all right mm -hmm. and it's like ooh, and and so they are like okay so these organisms like these sweet tasting things right and you and they they operationalize that by we're going to say liking um is like this very pleasant facial expression right okay so then what about the wanting component so the wanting component is i want it which means that i'm willing to work for it Right. And so then um, you provide you create some kind of obstacle or job that the organism has to do in order to gain access to, let's say, something that tastes really sweet. And so, you know, um, a lot of this has been done in um, in rats. And so rats love like chocolate milk and, you know, anything sweet, uh, you know, sugar pellets. We used a lot of um, fruit punch flavored sugar pellets. It kind of tastes like nerds. Um, and so they love sweet things and they're actually willing to work pretty hard to get access to sweet things because um, they're you know their usual diet day-to-day -day is you know just pellets and so it's like probably not very tasty okay so how do you tell if an animal wants something or likes something well what you can do is block dopamine in the brain right and then squirt uh, uh you know a sweet solution in the mouth um does the animal still like it and then you're looking for that facial expression. And so when you block dopamine, they still like it, right? Mm. However, when you block dopamine, they no longer want it. And what I mean by that is they will no longer work for it. 
So that's what I mean by wanting and liking, right? It may be in, in the laboratory, it's defined differently than maybe how we think about it in our everyday lives. But um, that's what I was talking about in terms of dopamine. That's interesting. Mm. So then with animals, we see things like, like foraging and the whole concept of contra-free loading and all of that. And that is all mediated by dopamine then like all of oh, that I mean it's it's much more complicated than that but you know when trying to untangle the story of dopamine and everybody thinking oh we like stuff because of dopamine mm-hmm. this clever lab right um they're at Michigan and um, this clever lab figured out that there was a difference between a, a wanting and a liking okay. behavior right and so that's what I mean by clever is they just use these really clever assays to be mm-hmm. able to you know get at that question so you know seeking behaviors like foraging right um you know it makes you know you're working a little for something there right you know if you mm-hmm. do a you do a food scatter right, right that that's a seeking foraging behavior. And so it seems to me that would be like more of a wanting, right? Because you're willing, you're willing to go and look for the food, right? Right, right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So maybe, yeah, dopamine probably plays a role there. Like there's a lot of rabbit holes um, for me that I could go down. (laughs) So many, like there's so many things that I have already edited out of what I want to say, because I'm like, oh my God, we'll be here all night. (laughs) I do have um, this and talk about that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, I do have one other thing that I um, wanted to ask you that we have we've kind of skirted around but haven't talked about. Um, So when we're looking at um, an event, something that's happened, and how are how we're going to remember that? Like I know or I think I know that um, the level of importance that, that we may be assigned to it determines how many specific details we might remember about it. Yes, or, or am I off base there? Like, what's an example? Like, um, okay, so say I... Um, I'm, I'm having a hard time thinking of an example. Um, okay, say um, my friend tells me something and I think it's frivolous. And so like, I just like, don't remember it, right? But then later on, I figure out, I realize that it is important information. So then, then I'm gonna remember, I guess, more of the details about where she told me what I was doing, um, maybe what I was wearing, um, mm-hmm. her tone of voice, how it made me feel, you know, like all of that. Yeah. Um, but the part that I was kind of wondering about, is there a space in, t- like, is there a duration that, that it's too far for, for that, wait, this is important, you should remember more things about it, moment to happen like Mm -hmm. is it after that 24 hours or is it less time than that or do you know so 
So like I said, in the in laboratories, when you're studying memory, right, and you're looking at um, memory consolidation or, you know, getting the memories to stick in the brain, you know, most people are looking at a 24 hour time point. Um, and it's just it's convention. And we know from decades and decades of research that at 24 hours, the memory should be consolidated. Okay, and and there's lots of processes that you know, if you look at the timeline, you know, what has to happen within a cell or between cells, you know, and you look at the timeline of those things, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Actually, 24 hours um, it, it makes sense. Okay, so here is um, another study that I love. So it, again, in humans, but again, it should apply to, I think, most mammals because, again, our brain structures are very similar, our memories, um, our sensory systems are organized, many of them in very similar ways. Okay, so uh, a group of subjects went into a sleep lab and um, they did some, some kind of task. I don't remember what the task was exactly, but they did some kind of task and then... Um, half of the people were told that they would be tested the next day and mm -hmm. half were not told that and they didn't make a big deal about anything right so the, you know the task was something like not super exciting pretty generic mm -hmm. you know um and so then 24 hours later so i slept in the lab and then 24 hours later um they retested them and the people who were told that they would need to remember something of that task performed much better than people who weren't told that they were going to need to remember something okay makes that makes sense right somebody right, tells right. you you're going to need to remember this i mean you try and remember it mm -hmm. and so one of the things that they did um is they the people who were told they were going to need to remember it what they did is basically kept those people busy so that they didn't they couldn't rehearse right so it's not about mm -hmm. rehearsal right? Mm -hmm. It's not the rehearsal component because they kept them busy so that they mm. didn't have a lot of time to rehearse, but they still remembered much better. Okay. Here's the best part of this study. And I'm always like, <sighs> okay. So, <laughs> so they were clever enough to figure out that they should ask the group of subjects who were not told that they were going to be tested later, if they suspected that they were going to be tested later and they broke that group now into two groups right so the people who had no idea never suspected that they were going to be tested they had the the worst memory for the task but there's this middle group who suspected that maybe they might need to remember something and so they were kind of in the middle right and then the best right, were the people who were told that they were going to need to remember. Um, nice. And so, yes, and and it wasn't initially what they were thinking, like, they didn't design the study initially like that, but then realized, oh my goodness, we have actually this little bit of data asking people if they suspected they were going to be tested and then broke that out. And I was like, mm. oh, Lord, that's just, <laughs> you're like, swoon. <laughs> so clever, right? So, so, so clever. So, for episodic memory and the hippocampus, one of the, you know, principles or key aspects of episodic memory and the role of the hippocampus and episodic memory is that the hippocampus engages in incidental encoding. In other words, it's there's automatic capture. It automatically captures the information, right, so that you don't need to think about 
oh gosh, am I going to need to remember this? Oh, I better remember this. Because imagine if you had to walk around like 24 and seven or, you know, whatever, like thinking to yourself, oh, what color was that car that was ahead of me? That, what color was that person's shirt, right? Your brain is, is engaging in automatic capture, right? And then somehow, you know, knows at some point, well, here are the things we're going to get rid of. And as you probably know, sometimes it actually gets rid of stuff that you wish it had kept. (laughs) Right. But that automatic capture aspect of episodic memory is really, really important and a fundamental property of episodic memory that you're not constantly thinking, oh gosh, am I going to have to remember? Oh gosh, am I going to have to remember this? And so for dogs, especially that episode, that automatic capture component I think would be really important because they're not rehearsing in the same way that we can rehearse right 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 so just always tell yourself that you might be tested later I think that will be the key is that what we're going to do to our poor clients here then after this podcast you're going to be tested next week (laughs) (laughs) oh that's funny I better have a sleep now Mm. yeah yeah <laughs> all right well does anybody else have any questions for Marsha um I'm just oh, I don't know how to word this so would you say Marsha when we're doing safe absences with our training with the dogs that when the owner returns the dog is getting a dopamine hit is that something they like and want (laughs) uh do you know what I mean like touching back on what you were talking about earlier how does that fit into our training I guess is my question I don't know that it does okay um I'm just trying to think so like how so the person okay so the dog's alone for a little bit and then the person comes back and then I assume there's like a protocol for them to follow about how they reintroduce themselves to the dog so they don't jack them up and get them too crazy or yeah so what's the protocol well just to be natural and neutral don't make a big fuss over them um you know don't go silly over them yeah just to try and keep it low key so they can greet the dog but not necessarily yeah Oh, mm-hmm. you know, Fluffy, I'm so pleased to see you. I know. I um, When I come home, I don't make a big fuss about my dogs and, and um, just keep the energy level, you know, a little low. And I know they're happy to see me. Um, and so I'm, I try to be calm and neutral when I come home. When my husband comes home, they go totally batshit. <laughs> like, sometimes I'm offended, you know, I'm like, yeah, yeah do that for me but I know why because I set the you know tone or the precedent for the breeding yeah you know I don't I don't know specifically about like owner returning I don't know but yeah I don't know I guess like obviously the earner the the owner returning or the caregiver returning is a uh, um, reinforcement mm-hmm. right yeah, I would guess. yeah, yeah. Especially for a a dog that struggles with being apart from their uh, person. So yeah. So there's probably a liking component and maybe also a wanting component, right? The thing, I guess, 
the thing that I was caution is like, you know, the reason why dopamine got um, blamed for everything is because we often think of like only one thing at a time, forgetting that there's so much going on all at once, right? So it's not just one neurotransmitter system or one brain region, but like everything's pumping along constantly, right? And so I think like in that particular case, you know, it might be too simplistic to think of it that way. Um, really, you know, like, you know, a lot of what we know or what I know even is pretty simplistic in that in laboratories, I mean, the reason why you do this stuff in laboratories is because you get to control as many variables as possible. And it really, a lot of times doesn't reflect the out, you know, the real, the real world that in quotation marks, right? Because you really are trying to peel things away so that you can get a, you know, a nice clean um, response or behavior, whatever it is you're doing. So it's probably dopamine and the opioid system and, you know, and, 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 and. Well, thanks for talking to me because um, I don't get to talk about this stuff with a, a, a lot of people. And, um, and whenever somebody is willing to listen, then I'm always really excited to, <laughs> to get to dump some of what is stored in my brain out. And, um, and get to discuss it with people because um, I think I mentioned this on the other podcast I was on, but, you know, um, I, I did neuroscience first and I did dog training second. And so sometimes I have a really hard time still seeing where the overlap is and there is so much. And sometimes it takes being able to have discussions like this for me to have big, you know, breakthroughs or insights and be like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think wow. it's fascinating, Marsha, especially the, you know, the fact that in some ways dogs are a lot closer to us than we think, particularly in the way that our brains work. Uh, and it's, you know, it kind of behooves us to, to give them a bit more of a break when it comes to the separation anxiety and especially the fact that this is a fear thing. This is a, a you know, it's an anxious behaviour. It's not something that they're doing on purpose. They're certainly yeah. not, you know, there's no malice behind it. There's nothing but that they no. are having similar experiences to those that we would have put in a situation ourselves where we were, you know, afraid of something and especially yeah. happening over again. I mean, the you know, when you talk about consolidation and something happening in 24 hours later, it's, I suppose it's a little bit like the photographs, isn't it? You know, the dog's left alone, they have a really fearful experience and then the following day happens again and then it happens again and then it happens yeah. again. I mean, I mean exactly. That's, that's exactly it. Yeah. So for yeah, us, that, it's, that is, it's a real, a real job to make it the other way around, isn't it? That they have a safe absence, and then the following day, another safe one, and then the following day, another safe one. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, and going back to so your very first question at the very beginning of this, you know, about um, how I ended up in dog training and out of the academic world or whatever. Um, I worked with rats and mice in the laboratory. Um, and so the last research laboratory that I worked in, I did pretty extensive behavioral training before um, I did other things with my rats. And I, I came to the conclusion in that lab that rats are so much like dogs. And then mm -hmm. I also think that 
Um, dogs are incredibly intelligent and emotionally intelligent and cognitively intelligent. And um, one of the reasons why I left research science is I just couldn't work on animal models anymore. It was not tenable for me. Mm. Yeah, that would be really difficult for me too. We'll link to your website too in the show notes. Yeah, if you tell us about okay, cool. um, the name of your business and how people can find you and we'll, um, we'll link to it as well in our show notes. Sure. So I'm at um, learningtodog.com. That's me. And uh, if you have puppies, I'm your gal. <laughs> now, do you do just in-person stuff or do you do online stuff as well? I do a lot of in-person stuff, but um, I do have some clients that are more far-flung, a few New York clients, a few um, clients in California. So I do do remote, but most of my stuff is in-person, um, unless the Delta variant decides that we're not doing that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Did <laughs> I mention I'm done with COVID? Can it be over yeah. now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I agree right. with you 100%. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us on the show. I hope, I hope we get to speak with you again sometime because I'm sure we could um, go down lots more rabbit holes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> cool. Thank Fabulous. you, Marsha. Thank you. We'll see you soon, Marsha. Okay, sounds good. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you all for joining us on this awesome journey with Marsha. I am Stacy in the U.S. with Focused Fun. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Focused Fun Dogs. My website is focusedfun.net. Okay, and you've been listening to me, Sarah McLaren from the UK at Separation Anxiety Solutions. Uh, you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram. And I did want to say before I go that we are also, are we not less, available on Amazon and Audible. Woo! Not as well as all the other Twitcher and Stitcher and all the other things. <laughs> yeah, so we are, we are on Amazon and uh, Audible in the UK and in uh, the US, but unfortunately, those uh, platforms aren't uh, providing podcasts, well, they're our podcasts in Australia as yet, to my knowledge. But I'm sure it will happen eventually. Yes, because of the awesomeness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I'm Ness Jones. I'm from Separation Anxiety in Dogs Decoded. You have been listening to Tales from the Doghouse Separation Anxiety Explained. You can find us on Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, and in the US and the UK, Amazon and Audible. (laughs) Bye, everyone. Yeah. Bye. <laughs>